Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello, everyone. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 281 of Forgotten Classics, where we are getting into the high adventure part of the White Mall. The White Mall is going to fulfill her promise that she made to Gypsy Nan on her deathbed. What does it even consist of? We're not sure, and neither is she. But first, let me tell you about a new podcast that also delves into mystery and adventure and things that are grim. It is called Old Tales. Inga Vesper delves into the grim fairy tales, the original grim fairy tales, where the woods are dark, the witches wicked, and adventure lurks behind every corner. It is original German tales told by an original German. So each episode has Inga reading one of the Grimm's fairy tales, in an English translation, of course, and then afterward she makes a little commentary, just about three minutes long, not that long usually, about how the English translation differs from the original German, which has been very interesting so far, I must say, and kind of the interpretation that you can make of the story and the different ways we've seen the stories go off into modern usage and how they've been changed there. It's really well done. She only has about four of them up so far because it is new, but they're not very long, you know, 10, 11 minutes long, maybe, because the stories are generally pretty short. And what Inga says on the website is that she's telling these because most people just know the Disney modern versions. They're gentle, they've been changed some. And she says, the real German fairy tales are anything but gentle and tame. They are scary, mean, and sometimes violent. They are true adventures where the heroes have to rely on their wit, cunning, and intuition to survive and win the kingdom. She says that she grew up with these tales and they shaped her childhood and that of countless other children across Europe, and that's why she wants to share the original stories the way they should be shared, reading them aloud. Now, I know we're all about that. I highly recommend it. Now, as I said before, the White Mall is setting off to fulfill her promise to Gypsy Nan. She doesn't really know what that means, and she doesn't really have any idea of how much danger she's putting herself in, except it sounded to me like a lot of danger. And that's what we're going to find. This is where the story really gets going. Let's dive in, and I'll meet you on the other side. Chapter 3 of The White Mall Alias Gypsy Nan Rhoda Gray went slowly from the room. In a curiously stunned sort of way she reached the street, and for a few blocks walked along scarcely conscious of the direction she was taking. Her mind was in turmoil. The night seemed to have been one of harrowing hallucination. It seemed as though it were utterly unreal, like one dreaming that one is dreaming. And then, suddenly, she looked at her watch, and the straight little shoulders squared resolutely back. The hallucination, if she chose to call it that, was not yet over. It was twenty minutes of one, and there was still Skarbolov's, and her promise. She quickened her pace. She did not like this promise that she had made, 
but, on the other hand, she had not made it either lightly or impulsively. She had no regrets on that score. She would make it again under the same conditions. How could she have done otherwise? It would have been to stand aside and permit a crime to be committed, which she was assured was easily within her power to prevent. What excuse could she have had for that? Fear wasn't an excuse. She did not like the thought of entering the back door of the store in the middle of the night like a thief, and like a thief, taking away that hidden money. She knew she was going to be afraid, horribly afraid. It frightened her now, but she could not let that fear make a moral coward of her. Her hands clenched at her sides. She would not allow herself to dwell upon that phase of it. She was going to Skarbolov's, and that was all there was to it. The only thing she really had to fear was that she would lose even a single unnecessary moment in getting there. Half past one, Gypsy Nan had said. That would give her ample time, but the quicker she went, the wider the margin of safety. Her thoughts reverted to Gypsy Nan. What had the woman meant by her last few wandering words? They had nothing to do with Skarbolov's, that was certain, but the words came back now incessantly. 739. What did 739 mean? She shook her head helplessly. Well, what did it matter? She dismissed further consideration of it. She repeated to herself Gypsy Nan's directions for finding the spring of the secret drawer. She forced herself to think of anything that would bar the entry of that fear which stood lurking at the threshold of her mind. From time to time she consulted her watch, and each time hurried the faster. It was five minutes past one, when stealing silently through the black lane, and counting against the skyline, the number of buildings she had previously counted on the street from the corner, she entered an equally black yard, and reached the back door of Skarbolov's little store. She felt out with her hands and found the padlock, and her fingers pressed on the link in the chain that Gypsy Nan had described. It gave readily. She slipped it free and opened the door. There was a faint, almost inaudible protesting creak from the hinges. She caught her breath quickly. Had anybody heard it? It, it seemed like a cannon shot. And then her lips curled in sudden self-contempt. Who was there to hear it? She stepped forward, closed the door silently behind her, and drew out her flashlight. The ray cut through the blackness. She was in what seemed like a small outer storeroom that was littered with an untidy collection of boxes, broken furniture, and odds and ends of all sorts. Ahead of her was an open door, and through this the flashlight disclosed the shop itself. She switched off the light now as she moved forward, there were the front windows, and used too freely, the light might by some unlucky chance be noticed from the street. And now, in the darkness again, she reached the doorway of the shop. She had not made any noise. She assured herself of that. She had never known that she could move so silently before. And, and, yes, she would fight down this panic that was seizing her. She would. It would only take a minute now. Just another minute, if, if she would only keep her head and her nerve. That was what Gypsy Nan had said. She only needed to keep her nerve. She had never lost it in the face of many a really serious danger when with her father. Why would she now, when there was nothing but the silence and the darkness to be afraid of?
The flashlight went on again, the ray creeping inquisitively now along the rear wall of the shop. It held finally on the escritoire over in the far corner at her right. Once more the light went out. She moved swiftly across the floor, and in a moment more was bending over the escritoire. And now, with her body hiding the flashlight's ray from the front windows, she examined the desk. It was an old-fashioned, spindle-legged affair, with a nest of pigeonholes and multifarious little drawers. One of the drawers, whiter than the others, and in the center, was obviously the one to which Gypsy Nan had referred. She pulled out the drawer, and in the act of reaching inside, suddenly drew back her hand. What was that? Instinctively she switched off the flashlight, and stood, tense and rigid in the darkness. A minute passed. Another... Still she listened. There was no sound unless—unless she could actually hear the beating of her own heart. Fancy! Imagination! The darkness played strange tricks. It—it wasn't so easy to keep one's nerve. She could have sworn that she heard some sort of movement back there down the shop. Angry with herself, she thrust her hand into the opening now, and felt hurriedly around. Yes, there it was. Her fingers touched what was evidently a little knob or button. She pressed upon it. There was a faint, answering click. She turned on the flashlight again. What had before appeared to be nothing but one of the wide, pearl-inlaid partitions between two of the smaller drawers was protruding invitingly outward now by a matter of an inch or so. Rhoda Gray pulled it open. It was very shallow, scarcely three-quarters of an inch in depth but it was quite long enough, and wide enough for its purpose. Inside there lay a little pile of banknotes, banknotes of very large denominations. The one on top was a thousand-dollar bill. She reached in and took out the money, and then, from Rhoda Gray's lips, there came a little cry. The flashlight dropped from her hand and smashed to the floor, and she was clinging desperately to the edge of the escritoire for support. The shop was flooded with light. Over by the side wall, one hand still on the electric switch, the other, holding a leveled revolver, stood a man. And then he spoke, with an oath, with curious amazement. My God! A woman! She did not speak or stir. It seemed as though not fear, but horror now, held her powerless to move her limbs. Her first swift brain flash had been that it was one of Gypsy Nan's accomplices, here ahead of the appointed time. That would have given her cause, all too much cause, for fear. But it was not one of Gypsy Nan's accomplices, and, far worse, the fear of any physical attack upon her was the sense of ruin and disaster that the realization of a quite different and more desperate situation brought her now. She knew the man. She had seen those square, heavy-clamped jaws scores of times, those sharp, restless black eyes under overhanging, shaggy eyebrows familiar to the whole east side. It was Rourke, rough Rourke, of headquarters. He came toward her, and halfway across the room another exclamation burst from his lips. This time it held a jeer, and in the jeer a sort of cynical and savage triumph. The White Mall. He was close beside her now, and now he snatched from her hand the banknotes that, all unconsciously, she had still been clutching tightly. "'So this is what all the sweet charity's been about, eh?' he snapped. 
the white mull, the little saint of the east side that lends a helping hand to the crooks to get em back on the straight and narrow. The white mull, hell! You crooked little devil! Again she did not answer. Her mind was clear now, brutally clear, brutally keen, brutally virile. What was there for her to say? She was caught here at one o'clock in the morning after breaking into the place, caught red-handed in the very act of taking the money. What story could she tell that would clear her of that? That she had taken it so that it wouldn't be stolen, and that she was going to give it back in the morning? Was there anybody in the world credulous enough to believe anything like that? Tell Gypsy Nan's story, all that had happened tonight. Yes, she might have told that tomorrow, after she had returned the money and been believed. But now, no. It would even make her appear in a still worse light. They would credit her with being a member of this very gang to which Gypsy Nan belonged, one in the secrets of the organized band of criminals, who was trying to clear her own skirts at the expense of her confederates. Everything, every act of hers tonight, pointed to that construction being placed upon her story, pointed to duplicity. Why had she hidden the identity of Gypsy Nan? Why had she not told the police that a crime was to be committed, and left it to the police to frustrate it? It would fit in with the story, of course. But the story was the result of having been caught in the act of stealing twenty thousand dollars in cash. What was there to say? And, above all, to this man, whose reputation for callous brutality in the handling of those who fell into his hands had earned him the sobriquet of Rough Rourke. Sick at heart, desperate, With her hands clenched now, she stood there while the man felt unceremoniously over her clothing for a concealed weapon. Finding none, he stooped, picked up the flashlight, tested it, and found it broken from its fall. Too bad you bust this. We'll have to go out in the dark after I switch off the light, he said with unpleasant facetiousness. I didn't have one with me, or time to get one, when I was tipped off there was something doing here tonight. He caught her urgently by the arm. Well, come along, my pretty lady. This'll make a stir, this will, the white mall. He led her to the electric light switch, turned off the light, and, with his grasp tight upon her, made for the front door. He chuckled in a sinister manner. Say, you're a prize, you are. And pretty clever, too, aren't you? I wasn't looking for a woman to pull this. The white mall, some saint. Rhoda Gray shivered. Disgrace, ruin stared her in the face. A sea of faces in a courtroom, morbid faces, hideous faces, leered at her. Gray walls rose up before her, walls that shut out sunshine and hope, pitiless, cold things that seemed to freeze the blood in her veins. And tonight, in just a few minutes more, a cell. From the street outside came the sound of someone making a cheery, but evidently a somewhat inebriated, attempt to whistle some ragtime air. It seemed to enhance her misery, to enhance by contrast in its carefree cheeriness the despair and misery that was eating into her soul. Her hands clenched and unclenched. If there were only a chance, somewhere, somehow, if only she were not a woman. If she could only fight this hulking form that gripped her so brutally at her arm. Ruff Rourke opened the door and pulled her out onto the street. She shrank back instinctively. It was quite light here from a nearby street lamp, 
and the owner of the whistle, a young man, fashionably dressed, decidedly unsteady on his legs, and just opposite the door as they came out, had stopped both his whistling and his progress along the street to stare at them owlishly. Hello, said the young man thickly. Whatch all this about, eh? Whatch you doin' in that place this time o' night, eh? Beat it, ordered Rough Rourke curtly. Thash all right, the young man came nearer. He balanced himself with difficulty, but upon him there appeared to have descended suddenly a vast dignity. I'm law abidin' citizen. Gotta know. Gotta show me. Damn funny. Comin' out of there this time of night. Eh? What's the idea? Rough Rourke, with his free hand, grabbed the young man by the shoulder, angrily. Mind your own business, or you'll get into trouble, he rasped out. I'm an officer, and this woman is under arrest. Beat it. Do you hear? Beat it. Or I'll run you in, too. Is that so? The young man's tone expressed a fuddled defiance. He rocked on his feet and stared from one to the other. Shay, is that so? You will, eh? Gotta show me. How do I know you're an officer? Eh? More likely damn thief yourself. I... The young man lurched suddenly and violently forward, breaking Rough Rourke's grip on Rhoda Gray. And as his arm swept out to grasp at the detective in an apparently wild effort to preserve his balance, Rhoda Gray felt a quick, significant push upon her shoulder. For the space of time it takes a watch to tick, she stood startled and amazed, and then, like a flash, she was speeding down the street. A roar of rage, a burst of unbridled profanity went up from Rough Rourke behind her. It was mingled with equally angry vituperation in the young man's voice. She looked behind her. The two men were swaying crazily in each other's arms. She ran on, faster than she ever had in her life. The corner was not far ahead. Her brain was working with lightning speed. Gypsy Nan's house was just around the corner. If she could get out of sight, hide, it would. She glanced behind her again, as her ears caught the pound of racing feet. The young man was sitting in the middle of the sidewalk, shaking his fist. Rough Rourke, perhaps a bare fifty yards away, was chasing her at top speed. Her face set hard. She could not outrun a man. There was only one hope for her, just one, to gain Gypsy Nan's doorway before Rourke got around the corner. A yard, another, still another. She swerved around the corner. And as she turned, she caught a glimpse of the detective. The man was nearer, much nearer. But it was only a little way, just a little way to Gypsy Nan's. Not so far as the distance between her and Rourke. And, and if the man didn't gain too fast, then, then, a little cry of dismay came with a new and terrifying thought. Quite apart from Rourke, someone else might see her enter Gypsy Nan's. She strained her eyes in all directions as she ran. There wasn't anyone. She didn't see anyone. Only Rourke, around the corner there, was bawling out at the top of his voice. And, and, she flung herself against Gypsy Nan's door, stumbled in, and, closing it, heard Rourke just swinging round the corner. Had he seen her? She didn't know. She was panting, gasping for breath. It seemed as though her lungs would burst. She held her hand tightly to her bosom as she made for the stairs. She mustn't make any noise. 
They mustn't hear her breathing like that. They, they mustn't hear her going up the stairs. How dark it was! If she could only see, so that she would be sure not to stumble. She couldn't go fast now. She would make a noise if she did. Stair after stair she climbed stealthily. Perhaps she was safe now. It had taken her a long time to get up here to the second floor, and there wasn't any sound yet from the street below. And now she mounted the short, ladder-like stairs to the attic, and feeling with her hand for the crack in the flooring under the partition, reached in for the key. As her fingers closed upon it, she choked back a cry. Someone had been here. A piece of paper was wrapped around the key. What did it mean? What did all these strange, yes, sinister things that had happened to her tonight mean? How had Rourke known that a robbery was to be committed at Skarbolov's? Who was that man who had effected her escape? And who, she knew now, was no more drunk than she was? Fast, quick, piling one upon the other, the questions raced through her mind. She fought them back. There was no time for speculation now. There was only the one question that mattered. Was she safe? She stood up, thrust the paper for safekeeping into her bosom, and unlocked the door. If, if Rourke did not know that she had entered this house here, she could remain hidden for a few hours. It would give her time to think, and... It came this time. No strength of will would hold it back. A little moan. The front door below had opened. A heavy footstep sounded in the lower hall. She couldn't see, of course. But she knew. It was Rourke. She heard him coming up the stairs. And then, in a flash, it seemed, her brain responded to her despairing cry. There was still a way, a desperate one, but still a way, if there was time. She darted inside the garret, locked the door, found the matches and candle, and running silently to the rear wall, pushed up the board in the ceiling. In frantic haste, she tore off her outer garments, her stockings and shoes, pulled on the rough stockings and coarse boots that Gypsy Nan had worn, slipped the other's greasy, threadbare skirt over her head, and pinned the shawl tight about her shoulders. There was a big, voluminous pocket in the skirt, and into this she dropped Gypsy Nan's revolver, and the paper she found wrapped around the key. She could hear a commotion from below now. It was the one thing she had counted upon. Rough Fork might know that she had entered the house, but he could not know whereabouts in the house she was and he would naturally search each room as he came to it on the way up. She fitted the gray-streaked wig of tangled, matted hair upon her head, plunged her hand into the box that Gypsy Nan used for her makeup, and daubed some of the grime upon both her hands and face, adjusted the spectacles upon her nose, hid her own clothing, closed the narrow trap door in the ceiling, and ran back, carrying the candle to the washstand. Here there was a small and battered mirror, and more coolly, more leisurely now, for the commotion still continued from the floor below, she spread, and rubbed in, as craftily as she could, the grime streaks on her face and hands. It was neither artistic nor perfect, but in the meager, flickering light, now the face of Gypsy Nan seemed to stare reassuringly back at her. It might not deceive anyone in daylight, she did not know, and it did not matter now, but with only this candle to light the garret, since the lamp was empty, she could fairly count on her identity not being questioned. She blew out the candle, left it on the washstand, because, if she could help it, she did not want to risk having it lighted near the bed or door, and tiptoeing now she went to the door, unlocked it, then threw herself down upon the bed. Possibly a minute went by, possibly two, 
and then there was a quick step on the ladder-like stairs. The door handle was rattled violently, and the door was flung open and slammed shut again. Rhoda Gray was upright on the bed. It was her wits now, her wits against rough rorks. Nothing else could save her. She could not even make out the man's form. It was so dark. But, as he had not moved, she was quite well aware that he was standing with his back to the door, evidently trying to place his surroundings. It was Gypsy Nan, not Rhoda Gray, who spoke. "'Who's there?' she screeched. "'Do you hear, Blastius? Who's there?' Ruff Rourke laughed gratingly. "'That you, Nan, my dear?' "'Who do you think it is, me grandmother?' demanded Rhoda Gray, caustically. "'Who are yous?' "'Rourke,' said Rourke, shortly. "'I guess you know, don't you?' "'Is that so?' snorted Rhoda Gray. "'Well, then, yous can beat it. Hop it. On to jump.' "'What the hell right have yous got bustin' into my room at this time of night, eh? "'I ain't done nothin'.' Ruff Rourke, his feet scuffling to feel the way, came forward. "'Cut it out,' he snarled. "'I ain't the only visitor you've got. "'It's not you I want. It's the White Mall.' "'What's that got to do with me?' Rhoda Gray flung back hotly. "'She ain't here, is she?' "'Yes, she's here,' Ruff Rourke's voice held an ugly menace." I lost her around the corner, but a woman from a window across the street, who heard the row, saw her run into this house. She ain't downstairs, so you can figure the rest out the same as I do. De woman was kiddin' yous, Rhoda Gray, alias Gypsy Nan, cackled derisively. There ain't nobody here but me. We'll see about that, said Ruff Rourke. Strike a light. Ah, strike it yourself, retorted Rhoda Gray. I ain't your servant. There's a candle over there on the washstand against the wall, if yous wants it. A match crackled and sputtered into flame. Its light fell upon the light standing on the chair beside the bed. Ruff Rourke stepped toward it. There ain't any oil in dat, croaked Rhoda Gray. Didn't I tell yous de candle was over there on the washstand, and... The words seemed to freeze in her throat, the chair, the lamp, the shadowy figure of the man in the match flame, to swirl before her eyes and a sick nausea to come upon her soul itself. With a short, triumphant oath, Ruff Rourke stopped suddenly and reached in under the chair. And now he was dangling a new black kid glove in front of her. Caught. Yes, she was caught. She remembered Gypsy Nan's attempt to put on her gloves. One must have fallen to the floor unnoticed by either of them when Gypsy Nan had thought to put them in her pocket. The man's voice came to her as from some great distance. "'So she's not here, ain't she? "'I'll teach you to lie to me. "'I'll—' "'The match was dying out. "'Rourke raised it higher, "'and with the last flicker located the washstand "'and made toward it, obviously for the candle. "'Her wits against rough Rourke's. "'Nothing else could save her. "'Failing to find anyone here but herself, "'certain now the white mall was here, "'only a fool could have failed in his deduction. "'And rough Rourke was not a fool.' her wits against rough rorks. There was the time left her, while the garret was still in darkness. Just that, no more. With a quick spring she leapt from the bed, seized the chair, sending the lamp to the floor, and dragging the chair after her to make as much noise and confusion as she could, she rushed for the door, screeching at the top of her voice. "'Run, dearie! Run! Run!' She was scuffling with her feet, clattering the chair, as she wrenched the door open, and then— in her own voice. "'Nan, I won't. I won't let you stand for this. I—' 
Then Gypsy Nan again. Run, dearie. Don't you mind old Nan. She banged the door shut, locked it, and whipped out the key. It had taken scarcely a second. Still, she was screeching at the top of her voice to cover the absence of flying footers on the stairs. Run, dearie. Run, run. And then, in the darkness, the candle still unlighted, Ruff Rourke was on her like a madman. With a sweep of his arm, he sent her crashing to the floor and wrenched at the door. The next instant, he was on her again. The key! Give me the key! he roared. For an answer, she flung it from her. It fell with a tinkle on the floor at the far end of the garret. The man was beside himself with rage. Damn you! If I had time, I'd wring your neck for this, you she devil! he bawled and raced back, evidently for the candle on the washstand. Rhoda Gray sprawled on the floor where he had thrown her, did not move except to take the revolver from the pocket of her dress. She was crooning queerly to herself as she watched Rough Rourke light the candle and grope around the floor. She was good to me, Dwight Maul was. Jellies and tings she brought me, she did. And Gypsy Nan don't ferret. Gypsy Nan don't. She suddenly sat up snarling. Rourke had found the key, left the bottle with the short stub of a guttering candle standing on the floor, and was back again. By God, he gritted through his teeth as he jabbed the key with frantic haste into the lock. I'll fix you for this. He made a clutch at her throat as he swung open the door. She jerked herself backwards, eluding him, her revolver leveled. Yous keep your dirty paws off on me, she screamed. Yeah, what can yous do? What do I care? She was good to me. She was, and. Ruff Rourke was gone, taking the stairs three or four at a time. Then she heard the street door slam. She rose slowly to her feet and suddenly reached out, grasping at the door to steady herself. It seemed as though every muscle had gone limp, as though her arms had not strength to support her. And for a moment she hung there. Then she locked the door, staggered back, sank down on the edge of the bed, and with her chin in her hands, stared at the guttering stub of candle. And presently, in an almost aimless, mechanical way, she felt in her pocket for the piece of paper that she had found wrapped around the key, and drew it out. There were three figures scrawled upon it, nothing else. Seven, three, nine. She dropped her chin in her hands again, and stared again at the candle. And after a while, the candle went out. Chapter Four The Adventurer Twenty four hours had passed. Twenty four hours. Was it no more than that since Rhoda Gray, in the guise of Gypsy Nan, as she sat on the edge of the disreputable, poverty stricken cot, grew suddenly tense, holding her breath as she listened? The sound reached the attic so faintly that it might be but the product solely of the imagination. No, it came again, and it defined itself now, a stealthy footstep on the lower stairs. A small leather-bound notebook, in which she had been engrossed, was tucked instantly away under the soiled blanket, and she glanced sharply around the garret. A new candle, which she had bought in the single excursion she had ventured to make from the house during the day, was stuck in the neck of the gin bottle, and burned now on the chair beside her. She had not bought a new lamp. It gave too much light. The old one, the pieces of it lay over there, brushed into a heap in the corner on the floor. The footstep became more audible. Her lips tightened a little. 
the hour was late. It must be already seven o'clock. Her eyes grew perturbed. Perhaps it was only one of the unknown tenants of the floor below going to his or her room. But, on the other hand, no one had come near the garret since last night, when that strange and, yes, sinister trick of fate had thrust her upon the personality of Gypsy Nan, and it was hoping for too much to expect such seclusion to obtain much longer. There were too many who must be interested, vitally interested, in Gypsy Nan. There was Rough Rourke, of headquarters. He had given no sign, but that did not mean he had lost interest in Gypsy Nan. There was the death of the real Gypsy Nan, which was pregnant with possibilities. And though the newspapers that she, Rhoda Gray, had bought and scanned with such tragic eagerness, had said nothing about the death of one Charlotte Green in the hospital, much less had given any hint that the identity Gypsy Nan had risked so much to hide had been discovered. It did not mean that the police, with their own ends in view, might not be fully informed, and were but keeping their own counsel while they baited a trap. Also, and even more to be feared, there were those of the criminal organization to which Gypsy Nan had belonged, and to which she, Rhoda Gray, through a sort of hideous proxy, now belonged herself. Sooner or later they must show their hands, and the test of her identity would come. And here her danger was the greater, because she did not know who any of them were, unless the man who had stepped in between Rough Rourke and herself last night was one of them, which was a question that had harassed her all day. The man had been no more drunk than she had been, and he had obviously played the part to get her out of the clutches of Rough Rourke. But against this, he had seen her simply as herself, then, the White Mall. And what could the criminal associates of Gypsy Nan have cared as to what became of the White Mall? A newspaper, to procure which had been the prime motive that had lured her out of her retreat that afternoon, caught her eye now, and she shivered a little as, from where it lay on the floor, the headline seemed to leer at her, and mock and menace her. The White Mall, the saint of the East Side exposed, vicious hypocrisy, lowly charity for years cloaks a consummate thief. They had not spared her. Her lips firmed suddenly, and she listened. The stealthy footfall had not paused in the hall below. It was on the short, ladder-like steps now, leading up to the garret, and now it had halted outside the door, and there came a low, insistent knocking on the panels. "'Who's there?' demanded Rhoda Gray, alias Gypsy Nan, in a grumbling tone, as, getting up from the bed, she moved the chair noiselessly a few feet further away, so that the bed would be beyond the immediate radius of the candlelight. Then she shuffled across the floor to the door. "'Who's there?' she demanded again, and her hand, deep in the voluminous pocket of Gypsy Nan's greasy skirt, closed tightly around the stock of Gypsy Nan's revolver. The voice that answered her expostulated in a primitive whisper. "'My dear lady, after all the trouble I have taken to reach you here without being either seen or heard?' For an instant Rhoda Gray hesitated. There seemed something familiar about the voice." Then she unlocked the door and retreated toward the bed. The door opened and closed softly. Rhoda Gray, reaching the edge of the bed, sat down. It was the fashionably attired, immaculate young man who had saved her from rough rourke last night. She stared at him in the faint light without a word. Her mind was racing in a mad turmoil of doubt, uncertainty, fear. Was he one of the gang or not? 
Was she, in the role of Gypsy Nan, supposed to know him or not? Did he know that the real Gypsy Nan, too, had played a part, and, therefore, when she spoke, must it be in the vernacular of the East Side, or not? And then, sudden enlightenment, with its incident relief, came to her. My dear lady, the young man's soft, felt hat was under his arm, and he was plucking daintily at the fingers of his yellow gloves as he removed them. I beg you to pardon the intrusion of a perfect stranger. I offer you my genuine apologies. My excuse is that I come from a. I hope I am not overstepping the bounds in using the term mutual friend. Rhoda Gray snorted disdainfully. Ah, cut out the boudoir talk and get down to cases, she croaked. Who are yous anyway? The young man had gray eyes and they were lighted up now humorously. Boudoir? Ah, yes, of course. Awfully neat. His eyes, from the chair that held the candle, stared around the scantily furnished, murky garret as though in search of a seat, and finally rested inquiringly on Rhoda Gray. Yous can put the candle on de floor if yous like, she said grudgingly. That's de only chair der is. Thank you, he said. Rhoda Gray watched him with puckered brow as he placed the gin bottle. With its candle on the floor, and appropriated the chair. He might, from his tone, have been thanking her for some priceless boon. He wore a boutonniere, his clothes fitted like gloves. He exuded a certain studied, almost languid fastidiousness that was wholly out of keeping with the quick, daring, agile wit that he had exhibited the night before. She found her hand toying unconsciously with the weapon in her pocket. She was aware that she was fencing with unbuttoned foils. How much did he know about last night? Well, why don't you spill it? she invited curtly. Who are yous? Who am I? He lifted the lapel of his coat, carrying the boutonniere to his nose. My dear lady, I am an adventurer. Yous don't say, observed Rhoda Gray, alias Gypsy Nan. And what's dat when it's at home? In my case, First of all, a gentleman, I trust, he said pleasantly. After that, I do not quarrel with the accepted definition of the term, though it is not altogether complimentary. Rhoda Gray scowled. As Rhoda Gray, she might have answered him. As Gypsy Nan, it was too subtle, and she was beyond her depth. Yous look to me like a slick crook, she said bluntly. I will admit, he said, that I have at times, perhaps, Taken liberties with the law. Well, then, she snapped, cut out the highbrow stuff and come across with what brought yous here. I ain't holdin' no reception. Who's de friend yous was talkin' bout? The adventurer looked around him and lowered his voice. The white mall, he said. Rhoda Gray eyed the man for a long minute. Then she shook her head. I take back what I said about yous bein' a slick crook, she announced coolly. I guess yous are a dick from headquarters. Well, yous have got de wrong number, see? My fingers are crossed. Try next door. The adventurer's eyes fixed on the newspaper headlines on the floor. He raised them significantly to hers. You helped her get away from Rough Rourke last night, he said gently. Well, so did I. I am very anxious to find the White Mall, and as I know no other way except through you, I have got to make you believe me, if I can. Listen, my dear, and don't look at me so suspiciously. 
I have already admitted that I have taken liberties with the law. Let me add now that last night there was a little fortune of quite a few thousand dollars that I had already made up my mind was as good as in my pocket. I was on my way to get it. The newspaper will already have given you the details when I found that I had been forestalled by the young lady who, the papers say, is known as the White Mall. He smiled whimsically. Even though one might be a slick crook, as you suggest, it is no reason why he should fail in his duty to himself, as a gentleman. What other course was open to me? I discovered a very charming lady in the grip of a hulking police brute. She also, apparently, took liberties with the law. There was a bond between us. I, uh, took it upon myself to do what I could. And besides, I was not insensible to the fact that I was under a certain obligation to her, quixotic as it may sound, in view of the fact that we were evidently competitors after the same game. You see, if she had not forestalled me and been caught herself, I should most certainly have walked into the trap that our friend of headquarters had prepared. I, uh, as I say, I did what I could. She got away, but somehow Rough Rourke later discovered her here in this room. I understand that he was not too happy over the result, that thanks to you, she escaped again, and she has not been heard of since. Rhoda Gray dropped her chin into her grime-smeared hand, staring speculatively at the other. The man sat there, apparently a self-confessed crook and criminal, but also he sat there as the man to whom she owed the fact that at the present moment she was not behind prison bars. He proclaimed himself, in the same breath, both a thief and a gentleman, as far as she could make out. They were characteristics which, until now, she had never associated together. But now, curiously enough, they did not seem so utterly at variance. Of course they were at variance, must of necessity be so, but in the personality of this man the incongruity seemed somehow lost. Perhaps it was a sense of gratitude toward him that modified her views. He looked a gentleman. There was something about him that appealed. The gray eyes seemed full of cool, confident self-possession. and quiet as his manner was, she sensed a latent dynamic something lurking near the surface all the time, that she was conscious she would much prefer to have enlisted on her behalf than against her. The strong, firm chin bore this out. He was not handsome, but, with a sort of mental jerk, she forced her mind back to the stark realities of her surroundings. She could not thank him for what he had done last night. She could not tell him that she was the white mall. She could only play out the role of Gypsy Nan until, until, her hand tightened with a fierce, involuntary pressure upon her chin, until it brought a physical hurt. Until what? God alone knew what the end of this miserable, impossible horror in which he found herself engulfed would be. Her eyes sought his face again. The adventurer was tactfully engaged in carefully smoothing out the fingers of his yellow gloves. thief and gentleman, whatever he may be, whatever he might choose to call himself, what, exactly, was it that had brought him here to-night? The white mall, he had said, but what did he want with the white mall? He answered her unspoken question now, almost as though he had read her thoughts. She is very clever, he said quietly. She must be exceedingly clever to have beaten the police the way she has for the last few years. And, uh, I worship at the shrine of cleverness, especially if it be a woman's. 
The idea struck me last night that if she and I should, uh, pool our resources, we should not have to complain of the reward. Oh, so you's wants to work with her, eh? sniffed Rhoda Gray. So dat's it, is it? Partially, he said. But quite apart from that, the reason I want to find her is because she is in very great danger. Clever as she is, it is a very different matter today now that the police have found her out. She has been forced into hiding, and, if alone and without any friend to help her, her situation, to put it mildly, must be desperate in the extreme. You befriended her last night, and I honor you for the unselfishness with which you laid yourself open to the future attentions of that animal Rourke, but that very fact has deprived her of what otherwise might have been a refuge and a quite secure retreat here with you. I do not wish to intrude or force myself upon her, but I believe I could be of very material help, and so I have come to you, as I have said, because you are the only source through which I can hope to find her, and because, through your act of last night, I know you to be a trustworthy and perhaps even an intimate friend of hers. Ah, go on, said Rhoda Gray, alias Gypsy Nan, deprecatingly. That don't prove nothing. I'd have done as much for a stray cat if the bulls was chasing her. See? I told you's once you's had de wrong number. She didn't leave no address. That's flat, and that's de end of it. I'm sorry, said the adventurer gravely. Perhaps I haven't made out a good enough case. Or perhaps, even believing me, you consider that the white mall and not yourself should be the judge as to whether my services are acceptable or not. You's can dope it out any ways you likes, said Rhoda Gray indifferently. Me trot's getting a horse telling you's der ain't nothing doing. I'm sorry, said the adventurer again. He smiled suddenly, and tucking his gloves into his pocket, leaned forward and tore off a small piece from the margin of the newspaper on the floor. But his head, the while, was now cocked in a curious listening attitude in the direction of the door. You'll pardon me, my dear lady, if I confess that in spite of what you say, I still harbor the belief that you know where to reach the White Mall. And so he stopped abruptly, and she found his glance sharp and critical upon her. You are expecting a visitor, perhaps? he inquired softly. Rhoda Gray stared in genuine perplexity. What's to answer? she demanded. There is someone on the stairs, replied the adventurer. Rhoda Gray listened, and her perplexity deepened. She could hear nothing. Yous must have good ears, she scoffed. I have, returned the adventurer coolly. My hearing is one of the resources that I wanted to pool with the white mole. Well, then, maybe it's rough Rourke. Her tone still held its scoffing note, but her words voiced the genuine enough that had come flashing upon her. And if it is, after last night, and he finds yous and me together, there'll be. My dear lady, interposed the adventurer calmly, if there were the remotest possibility that it could be rough Rourke, I would not be here. What do yous mean? She had unconsciously towered her voice. The adventurer shrugged his shoulders whimsically. He had laid the piece of paper on his knee, and, with a small gold pencil which he had taken from his pocket, was writing something upon it. The fact that I can assure you that, whoever else it may be, the person outside there cannot be Rough Rourke, is simply a proof that if I had the opportunity, I could be of real assistance to the White Mall, he said imperturbably. Well, a grim little smile flickered suddenly across his lips. Do you hear anyone now? Quite low, but quite unmistakably, the short, ladder like steps just outside the door were voicing a creaking protest now as someone mounted them. Rhoda Gray did not move. It seemed as though she could hear the sudden thumping of her own heart. 
Who was it this time? How was she to act? What was she to say? It was so easy to make a single little slip of a word or manner that would spell ruin and disaster. Rubber heels and rubber soles, murmured the adventurer. But at that it is extremely well done. He held out the torn piece of paper to Rhoda Gray. If, he smiled significantly, if by any good fortune you see the white mall again, please give her this and let her decide for herself. It is a telephone number. She can always reach me there by asking for the adventurer. He was still extending the piece of paper. Quick, he whispered, as the doorknob rattled. Well, that plot trotted right along, didn't it? <laughs> oh my gosh. Entering, breaking, secret panels, mysterious gentlemen, and the poor white mall stuck in Gypsy Nan's persona. How's she going to get out of it? And the adventurer. I love that his name is the adventurer. You can see the capital T and the capital A. So this is a really fun story. As you can see, it just zips right along. And we will have more next week. So mostly what I have right now is reading news. A little while ago, Audible put The Long Goodbye by Raymond Chandler on sale. Gosh, I think it was $1.99, $2.99, something really cheap. So I picked it up and the narrator seems a bit heavy handed when you're first listening. But as the story went on, and it's about 11 hours long, I really kind of grew into the way he was essentially telling it. So I really wound up liking the narration. And I had not read any Raymond Chandler before, at least not novels. I'd read short stories. And this made me go looking for a book I could actually be reading and not just listening to. And so the library had several of the early Robert B. Parker's Spencer novels that I could borrow as ebooks. Oh my gosh, I've been enjoying these so much. I had forgotten just how fun the early part of the series was. I read these starting back in the 80s, but he wrote them starting in 1973. And it was really an interesting experience reading these at the same time as I was listening to The Long Goodbye because Spencer, Robert Parker's detective, you know, he's got a smart mouth. He's fairly self-aware. He's pretty funny, which of course is why I liked him from the beginning, not being a fan of hard-boiled fiction. But in this case, I was always. It didn't ever make me want to go back to the classics like Hammett or Chandler. But as I say, in conjunction with that, what I realized is just how well he was carrying on that legacy with all the descriptions of everything and what people are wearing and what they're drinking and eating. That's the same thing Raymond Chandler is doing. And then as the book went on, what I started to see when the story was coming to a conclusion with, oh my gosh, a twist that I just couldn't have imagined. Anyway, what was interesting about that was that I thought it was the more modern detectives that threw in the heart of gold where the detective, the tough guy, is trying to help save people, even in a moral way. And sometimes even the bad guys. One of the Parker books, for example, has uh, a bad guy who the hero Spencer has had to beat up. 
and somebody who idolized him is saying, you're soft. And he's like, hey, he's hurt. That doesn't mean he's soft. And, and you're just like, wow, you are super fair. Well, that's the same thing you see in this other book, The Long Goodbye. So I was really impressed with how modern it was and how fresh it must have seemed back when it was being written and first read. Anyway, so those are the books I recommend. Give those a try. Start with The God Wolf Manuscript. That's the first Robert Parker book. It's really good. And of course, by Chandler, I've only read The Long Goodbye, which I liked, but I felt like it kind of sagged a little in the middle during some of the many trips back and forth to the suburbs. I'm going to read The Big Sleep next. I have that on request from the library, which will be open on Tuesday, and I hope they have my copy so I can continue with my Chandler explorations. I didn't realize there were seven of these books. I just thought he wrote two or three of the Philip Marlowe books. So I'm really looking forward to starting at the beginning and seeing what he does with them. Here it is hot, no more rain, although not quite as hot as usual, though by the end of the week, I understand, or maybe it's early this week, I can't remember, we're going to be in the hundreds. And that's fairly late in the year for it to happen but it's starting to feel sizzly when you walk outside. I'm just grateful there's a little wind still. And that's it for me. If you want to leave a comment or ask a question, recommend a book or a story, you can contact me at julie at glyphnet.com. That's J-U-L-I-E at glyphnet, G-L-Y-P-H-N-E-T.com. Or go to the blog for the podcast hcforgottenclassics.blogspot.com and my email's in the sidebar there too. Or, and this has nothing to do with requesting things, except that I'm requesting reviews just because I like to see what people have to say. Even if it's not always the most positive, although generally people are very kind and I love it. So, and I appreciate it very much. And I guess that's about all, except to say, I appreciate you coming by to listen. Otherwise, I wouldn't be listening to this story again myself and reading a few of the things that I'm getting ready for when it's done. I love it. And so I appreciate you spurring me on to do more. Have a great week, everyone. I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.